Jude, beginning at verse 17. This is God's holy word. Hear it. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, show, to others show mercy with fear, even hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Amen thus far. God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, help us please to hear this, your voice in your word. Would you make us receptive and responsive to it? Would you train our eyes and focus them on Christ? Teach our hands and our feet to move in fresh obedience to the dictates of your word. And work now, we pray, as your word is read and proclaimed in all our hearts for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day morning, we began to study this short book of Jude. One of the great emphases that we saw was the reality of spiritual warfare. We are the church militant, the church in the midst of a spiritual battle, whether we realize it or not, until glory. And Jude helps us understand that reality, that these are our marching orders from Almighty God to his soldiers on earth. And that's what Jude is communicating. Now, last time we looked at verses 1 through 16, where Jude describes false teachers and the threat that they pose to the church. And today, in verses 17 through 23, you'll notice how the tone changes. In the first 16 verses, Jude has been describing and rebuking the wickedness of the false teachers, rebuking their actions, noting how it poisons the church. And here in these verses, he offers a more uh, positive and constructive thesis. In contrast to the darkness of these false, treacherous <coughs> teachers, excuse me, here's how God's people should dwell in the world, in light and in life. I had a professor in college who helped us understand the problems that are fraught throughout bad theologies and low points in church history. And we would understand how things were wrong, how inaccurate and how bad it was in various past centuries. But then he would ask us, all right, what should we do about it? How should we correct it? How should we respond? It's not enough to just keep pointing out the problems. Anybody can do that. Let's come up with a solution. And that's what Jude is doing. So let's look together at verses 17 through 23. How do we strive in these days? Three simple points. We must avail ourselves of verses 17, 18, and 19, past assurances. Verses 20 and 21, present power. And then verses 22 and 23, ongoing grace. This is how we must strive toward victory. So first, verses 17 through 19, past assurances. 
Remember, for the first 16 verses, Jude has been describing the false teachers in their worldliness, in their immorality. And in verses 17 and 19, he drives it home in a summary fashion one last time. You see it? They scoff at truth. They are driven not by God's word, but by their own ungodly passions and appetites. Verse 18. Their false teaching is the real root of divisions in the church. Verse 19. They are worldly. They are not spirit-filled at all, as they claimed. But more than just repeating himself, verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Remember what God has said through his apostles. They said all along, this was how it was going to be in the last days. God promised this would happen. Now understand, the way that the scripture uses the phrase last days is a little different than we tend to use it. Usually when someone asks me, Pastor, are we living in the last days? They mean that point right before the end, the end time before Jesus returns, when things are really bad and things are really falling apart. But for the New Testament, the phrase last days refers to any time, any day, the whole era after the coming of the Messiah, from the point of the resurrection of Jesus until Jesus returns again. That whole era is the last days, the way the New Testament writers describe it. So... Are we living in the last days? Yes, and we have been ever since Jesus rose again. And so, Jude says, this whole period, just like the apostles said it would be, will be characterized by an ongoing problem. There will be false teachers. Expect it. Get ready for it. That's the message of the church both then and now. Now, you probably noticed as we've been reading through Jude that he quotes these very strange-sounding stories. And you might have thought, where in the world is, is this coming from? What is he talking about? Because these stories are nowhere in my Bible. Well, that's right. He's actually quoting commonly known stories, myths, extra-biblical accounts from outside the Scripture. <clears throat> Sources like these that false teachers loved to use to claim, they loved to claim that these sources were scripture. And they like to use these sources in order to try and legitimize themselves. So back in verse 9, he cites, he cites a book called The Assumption of Moses. And then verse 14, he refers to the book of Enoch. And what he's doing is he's using these false teachers' own stories against them, which is brilliantly clever. But more than dismantling their nonsense, do you see what Jude is doing? Verse 17. You, beloved, remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Christ's own authoritative spokesman said to you. Remember the word. Keep coming back. Keep coming back to the apostolic testimony. This is a trustworthy guide and a sure rule. Here is the primary weapon, brothers and sisters, the tool in our toolkit for the living of these days. It is the apostolic word. It is the word of God. Friends, so often we're facing that question. How are we going to stand faithful? 
how are we going to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? And I love how one man put it. A well-thumbed Bible is the best and final defense against error and the simplest and most effective counter to temptation. Few things make a minister, few things make a pastor happier than a worn-out, beat-up, pages-crinkled, crackle-covered, duct-taped-covered Bible. Few things are better than that holy sound of those onion-skin pages being turned in the midst of a service as we're looking together at the precious Word of God. So give yourselves over, brethren. Give yourselves over to knowing the Word and stealing your mind and your soul with God's own message, with His own words, His promises, His warnings, His predictions, because there is our battle strategy. Remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Let us be, in short, men and women of the book. This is how we defend ourselves. This is how we strengthen ourselves for the living of these days. We must remember past assurances. That's the first thing. But then secondly, look at verses 20 and 21. We must avail ourselves of present power. Now, there's a bit of a complex argument going on. Verse 21, look at the central imperative. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the key, key command. And how to do that is explained in verse 20. And in the second half of verse 21, this is a priority for Jude. You might remember last week we looked at Jude. We looked at verse 1. Jude calls all Christians as beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved and kept. That's who we are if we are believers. Nothing can change that. Nothing in all creation. Good news. We are beloved and we are kept in Christ. And yet, verse 21, we must also keep ourselves in the love of God. So you see there, there's an indicative and an imperative. A command which flows out of that permanent blessed status. We are beloved. We are kept. And yet, we must also keep ourselves in the love of God. Both are true. One does not cancel out the other. God keeps us in his love, and he does it enabling us to keep ourselves in his love. To put it another way, you're thinking, well, how does that work? To put it another way, one commentator says this, God preserves us by empowering us to persevere in him. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure, for his good pleasure. God is at work in us. So we busy ourselves to work for him. We must keep ourselves in the love of God. Close quote. Friends, that's such an exhortation that we need. How easily we drift. Now for some of us, the grace of Christ was once so sweet. We loved God's day. We loved God's praises. We loved God's prayers with God's people. We loved giving ourselves over to God's word. But then life happens. Schedules get busy. Marriages get rough. Kids are difficult. Our 
passions are cooled. The love of communion with Christ and the desire to spend much time in the things of God, that passion has waned. How easy then to cherish some, some secret sin, to snap at the family, to, to indulge in that lustful glance, or worse, to excuse our greed and excuse our spite. How easy, how easy to drift, brothers and sisters. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It is a vital word of exhortation. Be vigilant. Keep watch over your heart, brethren. Shepherd it constantly. Exercise self-watchfulness. Let your heart, let all our hearts never stray from the love of God. All right, but how do we do that? Well, look at the text surrounding that central command. The central command, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then how? Building, praying, and waiting. You see what he says there? Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the three tools that Jude gives us to keep ourselves in the love of God. First, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. He's using the language there of the construction zone or an architectural endeavor. The church of the Lord Jesus is always under construction. I trust you know that. But notice the plural language because that's important too. We, we are to build ourselves up. This is a group project. Some of us hated group projects in high school. <laughs> Many of us hated group projects in high school, but this is the most blessed of group projects. Here's the thing. If we are going to mature in Christ, it is something that we must do together, brethren. The New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity as much as our church culture of North America wants to tell us otherwise. No, you and I need the people of God. You need me, and I need you. Pray for me. Encourage me. I'll do the same for you. Spur me on to love and good works. Ask me how my soul is doing, and I'll do the same for you. That's exactly what Hebrews 13 exhorts. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing. Friends, we need the body of Christ around us. We need to gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day. That's why God has given us this day. Our souls need rest, and they need recharge, and they need fuel. And God has thrown wide open this door of the storehouse of His grace, and the contents come flooding out. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I need every last drop of His grace for my soul. I need every last drop of grace for my soul on this feast day of the week. And you need it too. And we find it here. We find it here in the church with one another, gathered around the Word, gathered in prayer, recalibrating our souls together. But do notice there is a specificity that we're not just to build ourselves up in the generic, but we are to build ourselves up in your most holy faith. Right back in verse 3, Jude said, fight. Fight for the faith. Defend the truth. That was his call. But here, 
he, he further unfolds that. Like how one commentator put it, fighting for the faith is only safe for us if we are building ourselves up in it first. Fighting for the faith is only safe if we are building ourselves up in it first. I know some folks, maybe you do too, they're all over the place, and it seems like our Reformed and Presbyterian churches seem to have a special attraction for these folks. They are the flaw hunters, always on the lookout, always on the lookout for other people's mistakes. And as you get to know these folks, almost invariably, almost invariably, there's a bitterness, there's a spiteful, sour attitude about them, as if the faith and doctrine that they so loudly and trenchantly defend against the errors of everyone around them, it's as if this fruit of the Spirit has become withered at the root in their own heart. There seems to be little in the way of love, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control, or joy. Now, two things can be true at once. Guard against error, yes, absolutely. Defend the faith once for all delivered for the saints, yes, amen. That's what Jude has been saying for 16 verses. Look out for false teachers, oppose them. But in the fight, in the midst of this dread spiritual battle, let's keep watch over our own souls. Is the truth of the Word of God life to our soul, nourishing, watering, such that it yields the love and the joy of the Holy Ghost, as the King James puts it, and not yielding the fruit, the dreary fruit of a cold, biting cynicism? Here's the question, to borrow another man's phrase. Do we fight about the faith, or do we fight for the faith? Do we fight about the faith, or do we fight for the faith? And how you answer that question, I think, will reveal what is true of the Word of God, or if, if the Word of God is actually nourishing our souls. Keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. But then also, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, a few things we should get clear here. Jude is not talking about speaking in tongues or about some ecstatic way of praying. Rather, look at the text. What Jude is doing is he's contrasting the lives of the false teachers with the life, on the other hand, of a true child of God. The false teachers, verse 19, are devoid of the Spirit. But those who keep themselves in the love of God... Pray in the Spirit. The Spirit drives their lives. It drives their lives to communion with God. And really, friends, there is no other kind of prayer. Praying in the Holy Spirit, it's not some kind of special prayer that only a few select Christians get to have. That is something that some Christian denominations will allege. No, all prayer. All prayer done by Christians, if it is truly prayer, is praying in the Holy Spirit. All our prayers as Christians are empowered by the third person of the Godhead, the God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. 
And all our prayers are aided by the Holy Spirit and carried up to heaven by the Holy Spirit. He gives credence and unction to our groanings and our stammerings, which is all the more appropriate given the tone of voice this morning. A lot of groaning, a lot of stammering. Praise the Lord for God, the Holy Spirit, and his ministry that aids even these feeble, fallible words to perfect them. Prayer isn't prayer at all unless it is prayer in the Holy Spirit. And all Christian prayer is prayer in the Holy Spirit. You see, apart from the Holy Spirit, it is merely words, friends. It's, it's, a, it's a religious performance. It's a vain show. Keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude says, by praying in the Spirit, depending on Him for power to pray and for boldness, for access to the throne of mercy, and for faith to press on. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, he says, verse 20. And how? By spirit-wrought, spirit-dependent, spirit-fueled prayer. How are Christians supposed to stay in the fight and to contend for the faith? Well, you see what Jude has been insisting for us? It's really quite simple. Make use of the means that God has appointed. Quite simply, be men and women of the word and be men and women of prayer. Be men and women of the word and be men and women of prayer. Interestingly, this is exactly how we identify counterfeits. Because if someone really is filled with the Spirit, as they claim, then they will love the truth. They will love the truth of God's word. They will be people of the word and they will be people of the truth. And those who don't love God's truth... These mockers who are devoid of the Spirit. That's what Jude is helping us be warned against. and That's what he's helping us be able to identify. Whatever someone else may tell you, whatever else they may claim, that person may claim to be filled with God's Spirit. But if they deny God's truth, they are a liar and are devoid of God's Spirit. So that's the second thing, building yourselves up, praying in the Spirit. But then the third thing, verse 21... Waiting anxiously, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's referring here to, the, to eagerly awaiting the final return of Jesus at the end of the age. Where that finally, the last piece of the puzzle, the last chapter in the Lord's plan of salvation for his people, our final redemption will arrive and we will be ushered into the fullness of everlasting life. Life and salvation, which we enjoy now, brought at last to its fullness when he returns. And Jude is simply calling us to keep our eyes fixed on that coming day. That's part of how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Friends, when's the last time, when's the last time we've paused to stop and think about Jesus' return? It helps keep us going. When's the last time you found yourself longing for heaven? For the new heavens and earth? Are you tired of this sin-sick world? Are you fed up with it? Are you eager for Christ to return and put an end to all that is wrong? To vanquish sin and to vanquish its effects at last and forever? To make all things right and good? Because the truth is the battle in this life is hard. We must long for his coming. Live today, friends, as if he were returning tonight. And let us be ready to be with him forever.
Long, look, wait anxiously for his return. Look for the return of Christ gladly, with eagerness, with a holy anticipation. And don't you love the Trinitarian nature of the exhortation that Jude gives? The Trinity is always practical. Don't let anyone ever tell you that it's not. All of our Christian life is lived in dependence on the power of the Holy Trinity. You see it here even in Jude's wording, the Holy Spirit empowering prayer, the love of God the Father motivating obedience, and the return of Christ pushing us on, inspiring us, stealing us with confidence until he returns again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian nature of our persevering in this life. So that's the second thing. Past assurances, present power, but then finally, ongoing grace. Ongoing grace, verses 22 and 23. Difficulties plague the church, no question about it. So how should we deal with these issues? Do you see Jude's wisdom here? First he says, deal with doubters. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, he says. In other words, they do not need a strong rebuke. There are those in the church sometimes who do need sternness who do need a strong rebuke from the elders. But these are not them. These have not left the faith. They have doubts, yes. They are insecure. They, they don't understand how all the pieces fit together. And maybe they've endured a dark and hard providence in their life and it has left them wounded. They're, they're not quite sure how to make sense of all the Christian faith. These folks are tender, fragile. And you see what Jude says they need? They need mercy. They need mercy. And when you get right down to it, all God's people need mercy. And it is indicative of a heart that, as those who have received mercy, we should, in turn, strive to show mercy to others. When you meet a struggling brother or sister, show them mercy, because you need it too. Pray with them. Tell them the promises of Scripture Point them to Jesus Christ. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's one group. But there's another group, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. There are doubting believers, but then there are others who are not believers at all, Jude says. Save them. There are those who are standing on the brink of eternity. They're, they're about to teeter over and fall into the eternal furnace of wrath and judgment against their sins. So save them. Snatch them out of harm's way. Tell them of Jesus. Plead with them. Present to them the good news, the glorious gospel news of salvation. Warn them about the brink on which they stand, teetering, ready at any moment to fall in and to be forever lost. Save them, Jude pleads. As one commentator pointed out, this is why we contend for the faith. This is why we pray in the Spirit. This is why we stay in the fight, to save some, yes, many, from the flames. God in the gospel of his Son can rescue them. And the people of God are the delivery system for the gospel of grace by which many may be saved for the ju from judgment. You are not the Holy Spirit and neither am I. Ultimately, none of us can change hearts. But God is pleased to communicate that good news through you and through me. They need to hear the good news. How are they going to hear it? 
It's through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a story to tell to the nations. Save others by snatching them from the fire. But then finally there's a third group. Have mercy on those doubters. Save others by snatching them from the fire. But then thirdly, to others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So mercy again, but this time mixed with fear. You see here Jude is giving a word of caution. Stained by the flesh seems to indicate that these folks have indulged in some kind of worldliness, perhaps to the point of infiltrating the church. And Jude is saying, be careful. As you show mercy to those backsliders, take care that temptation doesn't entangle you as well. Beware the snares of temptation yourself. Yes, show mercy with fear, hating, here's the key, even the garments stained by the flesh. Jude is calling for the people of God to have an allergic level of sensitivity to sin. We should be able to smell sin a mile away and do everything we can to inoculate ourselves against it. I often fear that in these days in our culture, we have grown so accustomed to worldliness, even in the church, that many times we are immune to it or indifferent to it. And whenever we hear, not always, but many times when we hear someone warn against sin or sinful tendencies using strong language like Holy Scripture does here in Jude, this, this exhortation to be so sensitive to sin that we hate even the garments stained by the flesh, we hear that kind of language and we cry, that's legalism. Brothers and sisters, no, it is not. It is not. Hating sin is not legalism. Fleeing sin is not legalism. It is godly wisdom. To put it another way, don't play with fire, we might say, or you're liable to burn yourself. That's not harshly restrictive. That's wise. Don't toy with sin. And as we show mercy to others, we must guard ourselves. We must fearfully regard and we must take it seriously, the wretched power of sin. We must show mercy. We must absolutely show mercy. But we must also be on guard. Sin is an intoxicating and entangling thing. But as we conclude, we must notice that for all the strong words, all the strong warnings, all the rebukes that Jude gives here, it is not done out of spite. It is not done out of harshness or severity. Do you see that? No. His concern in all of this is to win people to the Lord Jesus. Do you see that in verses 22 and 23? To save them, to show them mercy, that's his end goal. 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Or toward what? That leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. To the end, that they would know the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life. I love how one man put it. How countercultural. When the greatest weapon we wield is mercy. How countercultural when the greatest weapon we wield is mercy. Pluck them from the flames. Hate sin, but show mercy. Go after them. Go after them hard and bring back the wandering sheep. 
In the end, Jude's point really is simple, brothers and sisters. As we remember the word that God has spoken, as we, as we take it and we store it up in our heart, as we seek God's help and his present power to live for him now, we will find ourselves beginning to look for the lost and the backslidden and the wandering, showing grace, continuing to show grace, to spread the grace of Christ far and abroad that all his ransomed church might be gathered in, that all his ransomed church might be restored, reclaimed, redeemed, and all to his glorious praise. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Guard against sin. Reclaim the wandering sheep. And why? All to the praise of his glorious and matchless grace. The Lord of mercy. The Lord of might. The Lord. Bless the Lord for his word to us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise you for your word. The words of light and life that you bring to our hearts. Thank you for it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's ministry. We pray that even as I have fought frustrating and annoying tendencies of health this morning, that your word has been profitable to us, that your truth has been communicated, and that you would seal it to us. Give us grace and power, the power of your Holy Spirit, and the impulse, Lord, to show mercy and grace to the perishing, the impulse to show hatred towards sin, particularly our own, and the impulse, the knee-jerk reaction to show tenderness with the hurting, that we might spend all our days living to your glory until you come again. For we do anxiously long for the return of King Jesus. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.